welcome neighbors. Thanks so much for sharing with us a couple of minutes as we open up a new conversation that we're calling Forgiving. Um, when we talk about forgiveness um, and forgiving one another, it, uh, it's a topic, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation that really touches deep roots within us that we may or may not actually be conscious of. I think each of us has some experience and some perspective on forgiveness, either because we have been injured or because we have injured others or some combination of the two. Um, and it's a feature of the fallen world that we live in. Even though God created everything to work perfectly, because of our rebellion against him, it just doesn't. And when things don't work perfectly, we enter into a situation where forgiveness is necessary. Um, and I'm just going to assume that you're curious about this topic because you've clicked on it and you're, you're watching it now. Um, and my inclination when we talk about any kind of a topic is to really look at how Jesus approached it and to look about the things that he look closely at the things that he taught about a particular topic. Um, particularly when we're talking about forgiveness, because Jesus is the master forgiver. So I think he has something to teach us. And I'd like for us to look together in Scripture, in the Bible, and we're going to look at, at a number of chapters um, in, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 8, beginning in Matthew 18 and going through. We're going to go through together in this series all the way through chapter 20. But before we do that, and before we dig in, before you turn there, what I'd, I'd just like to invite you to, to please pray with me, won't you? <laughs> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So now, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles, uh, navigate in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to begin in verse 1, but if you've been following along with us, we've been in different conversations that have, been, that have, that have come out of the book of Luke, um, and Luke and Matthew are both uh, sections of the Bible that are biographies of Jesus. We sometimes call them Gospels, um, and as biographies of Jesus, they're written by two separate people, and the two people had slightly different purposes. See, we've been reading in Luke. And Luke is a doctor, he's very facts-driven, and his purpose in writing his biography of Jesus is to make and create a chronology, a timeline of Jesus' whole life. And, and he starts at the beginning, and he works his way through, and everything happens in order, and he tries to track it all, and is very orderly. Matthew um, is not exactly like Luke. He actually organizes his biography around five different teachings or five different, we call them discourses, that Jesus gave. Um, and Matthew was a tax collector, uh, and he was a disciple of Jesus. He was, he was one of the biographers of Jesus who actually 
walked with him, who knew these stories because he was present for them. Um, and so we've got a biography about Jesus written by a guy who walked with him for three years, who studied his life up close and personal, who has personal experiences with the, with the teachings that Jesus gave and with the experiences. And when he turns around to write down a biography of Jesus, he does it in a different kind of order. He's not trying, like Luke, to create a chronology. He's trying to teach us something about how Jesus lived and how, and how his life informed his teaching. And so as we read through Matthew's biography, he tends to group events and things that happened with teachings that go together with it. So there, there is more of a topical coherence within Matthew than there is in Luke. Because Luke's concern is just, this is what happens, this is what happens, this is what happens next. Matthew is saying, this is, these are some things that happened and they relate to Jesus's teachings like this. And these events relate to the teachings. And so um, it's, it's a lot more of a topical thing. So as we want to have a conversation about forgiving, probably the, the most direct and, and complete uh, discourse that Jesus gives, the best teaching that Jesus gives is in Matthew 18, but begins in verses 15 and goes through the end of the chapter to 35. So the second half of Matthew 18 is really, really clearly about forgiveness. But what we know about Matthew is that he liked to group teachings together that enforced each other. And so I think we would be doing a disservice by not looking at the first half of, of Matthew chapter 18. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. There are going to be themes here, and there's going to be pictures and ideas here, and you're going to look at me and go, Michael, I thought we were having a conversation about forgiveness. The things that we're talking about do not relate. But I'm going to ask you to please be patient with me as we explore this, as we open this conversation further. Um, we're going to see that in these first couple of verses in Matthew chapter 18, we really get a heart, get a look at the heartbeat of God, and we get some principles that we need to apply to our lives before we can have the conversation about forgiveness. So, so there are, are some first principles that we need to address before we look at the mechanics of how forgiveness is supposed to work. So I'll ask you to please be patient with me as we read this, um, because there are things that are going to appear to be not relevant to forgiveness. But if we overlook these things, we may go astray in trying to apply the teachings that come later. So, so we want to take seriously Jesus' teaching, and we want to take them in the context that they appear. So would you now, finally, open with me in Matthew chapter 18, and I'm going to begin reading... In verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be, greater, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
So as we approach that, that, that first section of, you're going, Michael, that has nothing to do with forgiveness. I don't understand where you're going with this. I, I thank you so much for being patient with me. I'd really like to dig into this with you. Um, the, the, the conversation opens with the disciples. These are, these are men whom Jesus has called from their, their previous occupations to come and follow him. So they were fishermen and they were tax collectors and they, were, they had different lives. But Jesus came along and said, I'd like for you to follow me. And these men left what they were doing and walked with Jesus for the whole three years that he was teaching actively in the world. And so these men, these 12 men are having a conversation about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it seems a little bit, uh, it seems a little bit strange for that to be a conversation. But in the previous verses, in chapter 17, beginning in verse 24, Jesus is having a conversation about religious royalty, about, about how the Pharisees were exercising their religious authority. And he <laughs> understatedly makes the claim that he is the Son of God and as such is entitled to God's riches, which is a great passage. I'd encourage you to read it. It's Matthew chapter 17, verses uh, 24 through 27. So, so Jesus has been talking about religious authority and calling himself the Son of God. And so these guys are now having a conversation, maybe amongst themselves, about who has the most religious authority, who's the greatest in the kingdom. And I don't know exactly what the setting here is, but it seems like maybe they were out in public. Maybe they were on their way somewhere. And as they're walking, Jesus pauses, having heard this question, and brings a child, almost as an illustration to what he's getting ready to teach them, into their midst and says, look, look at this kid. Like, look at this kid. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. So you don't even have a chance of getting into the kingdom if you're not like a kid. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is explaining, like, my kingdom doesn't work the way that you would expect for it to do. And my suspicion is that your understanding of what Jesus is driving at here really depends upon the children that you know. Um, you, when you read these verses, you're going to say, well, I know some kids, like, I really don't want to be like those kids, and, and I don't know what Jesus is driving at here, but I'm not going to be like a kid. Uh, that's, that's not for me. So uh, I would just encourage you to acknowledge real quick that generally, not in every way, but generally our culture is a culture that devalues children. We don't look at children as whole human beings, or we see them as incomplete, um, and, and in general, we as Western Americans look at kids as kind of like less than real humans. Um, and I'm not going to dive into a whole bunch of that except to say that here Jesus turns to a child and says, they're your example. He's, he's elevating these children to be an example for grown-ups. And Jesus does this all the time with, with people that we might look down upon. Jesus says, no, these people are your example. He elevates children in the same way that he often is seen elevating the role of women in society. And there's a couple of observations that I want to make about kids um, that might be what he's hinting at. We're going to come to some clarity about this, but, but I, I want to just give you some ideas. Kids implicitly trust people, not necessarily information. So oftentimes a child will trust you because of who you are to them, regardless 
of the information that you're giving them. They don't necessarily have the, the rational processes to, to evaluate the things that you're telling them, but they will trust you if you are somebody important to them. They'll trust you because you're their father or their mother or their aunt or their grandparent. Like kids trust a person, not necessarily the information that they have. And kids are accepting of gifts. Like kids love getting gifts. They, and they will accept them regardless of whether or not they think they are worthy. Because kids just have this default assumption that I'm worthy of all the good presents that you can give me. Gimme, 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 gimme. They are accepting of gifts. And kids also are completely reliant on adults. Like they're completely reliant. They, don't, they can't gather food by themselves. They can't make shelter by themselves for the most part. Like they're re completely reliant on grownups. And that's just how they navigate the world. They're also invariably curious. They are constantly, 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 constantly asking new questions. They're invariably curious. And all of these traits, that they implicitly trust people, that they're accepting of gifts, that they're completely reliant, and that they're invariably curious, all of these reflect an attitude of humility. And that's really the virtue that Jesus is trying to commend here. What does he say? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility of children is, is the, the virtue that he's trying to commend here. <laughs> so when we think about the kids that we know, um, how do we interact with this? Like when we look at them and we say, okay, yeah, they are obviously like, they're never not curious about things. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, we have to ask ourselves like, what is it, uh, how is it that I, go through the world? How is it that I navigate the world? Do I navigate the world in a humble way or do I navigate the world in an arrogant way? I've got this figured out. I've got a plan. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. It's going to be done this way. And it doesn't matter what's going to happen because I know what this is. There's an arrogance to it. Or do we navigate the world acknowledging, I don't really know everything and I am completely dependent upon God. And I, <laughs> life is better than I deserve. It's hard right now, but life is better than I deserve. And I'm going to trust God because of who God is, not necessarily because I have all the right information. And when we turn our attention to forgiveness, like, what, how do kids forgive? Like, like, a kid might easily be offended. That's a characteristic of children in a fallen world. They're easily offended. But they also are ready to forgive. They really do keep short accounts. So, so I just wonder, what are our default responses when we're given the opportunity to forgive. Like when we're looking at kids and we're looking at ourselves and we look at how kids forgive and we're looking at ourselves and how we might forgive, what are our default responses when we're given the opportunity to forgive someone? I think we're all bearing an additional burden in this season. Um, right now, we're coping with a global pandemic and we're dealing with life not being the way that it has been for our whole lives. This is a brand new situation where we don't really know how to navigate it. And so we all are carrying an extra burden right now. 
Um, and I wonder if maybe a burden that you are carrying is also a grudge. What are our default responses when given the opportunity to forgive? Well, it depends. It, it depends on the offense. It depends on the person. It depends on whether or not they meant to hurt me. It depends on whether or not they got away with it. Um, it, it, it just depends, Michael. What's my, my default response is, is, is tied to the circumstances. He, he closes these verses. The, we didn't really talk about it so much. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Like we ought to be receiving of one another, which means that there ought to be forgiveness extended to people. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, one of these little ones who believe in me, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened about his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So a, a millstone is like a, a rock that they would attach to a donkey and let the donkey go around um, and push the rock and it would roll on another rock and grind um, whatever got in between the two rocks, usually grain. Rocks, really big, really heavy. You don't want to be tied to it and thrown into water, much less deep water. But Jesus completely like uh, eliminates the opportunity for anybody to think you're going to wiggle out of this and say, it's a real big rock. It's tied to your neck, a vital part of your body, and you're thrown into the depth of the sea, the deepest part of the sea. Um, it would be better for you if you were causing these children to sin for you to just die a slow and painful and agonizing, but absolutely certain physical death. Now, Jesus here is, well, let me just say, we are, or we must become God's children, and we must treat one another in that manner. See, see, see the, the, the key here that Jesus is saying is, whoever uh, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children. Like he's saying, this is going to require a change in your life. Unless you change, so unless you, and if you've made that change, then you already are. We are or we must become God's children and treat one another as though we are each God's children, as though we are each brothers and sisters. And not just in the generic way of calling each other brother and sister, but actually treating each other with the same care and tenderness, the same um, vicious protection that we would have for one another and caring for people in our own family. As the family of God, we have to come together as God's children. And if we choose not to, it would be better for us to have a slow, painful, but absolutely certain physical death. Now, Jesus is talking in hyperbole, and uh, I'll explain a little bit more about what that is, because um, he takes it to the next level in the next passage. Would you read with me? Verse 7 of chapter 18 Woe to the world for the temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Um, so Jesus was not done with his hyperbole. Uh, and hyperbole is an overstatement. 
in order to make sure that the point gets across. I'm going to take this all the way to the extreme to make sure that you're paying attention to the point I'm trying to make. Because I don't think that Jesus is actually saying, like, if, if your body parts are causing you to sin, we do need to chop them off. Um, although I hate writing off Scripture when we come to commands in Scripture that are difficult. I hate immediately trying to spiritualize them, and so I'm not trying to do that. But we know that, that our physical bodies are going to be resurrected we're giving, we're, and restored. We're given new physical bodies. And, if, and I don't have the time to go into that. If you're interested in that, there was a great sermon um, given by Mario over at Good News Church. Uh, Good News Church of Ocala. And the, the title of the sermon is The Earliest Easter Lesson We Have. And he talks about that new body thing. And I'd encourage you to go and look at that. But he, he began with a positive illustration of we must become like children. And now he's giving a negative illustration of like, take this to the extreme in these verses. And there's also a shift in the viewpoint here. He goes from causing children to sin, causing others to sin, to causing yourself to sin, making the willful choice to sin. And he says, we've got to make some value decisions. We've got to look at what's going on and ask ourselves what is more valuable. To have a whole body and a corrupted spirit or to, let our or to, to have less than a whole body and, and have a spirit that is actually honoring to God. The, the idea of sin here is, is the idea of a rock that's in your way, uh, a rock that causes that you trip on it, you, you stumble on it. And, and the New American Standard Bible, that translation um, actually uses that terminology. Um, but the, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, I think gives a stronger translation than the English Standard Version, which I was reading. It says, woe to, in, 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 verse, um, in verse 7, woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. So we live in a fallen world. We know that offenses are going to happen. We're going to offend each other. There's going to be sin between the brothers and sisters. But woe to the man by whom the offense comes. If you're the one who's causing offense in a group, um, Woe to you, like you should be careful and you should take drastic measures to make sure that you are not the person who's going around hurting other people and offending them. In fact, you should cut off body parts to make sure it doesn't happen. And that strikes us as hard and it should. And we should take time to wrestle with the implications of that. How have I offended other people? What, have I, what am I doing and how can I, how can I not... Not disregard or water down truth, but, but to give the truth in a way that is giving life. But that uncomfortability highlights something within us that we don't want to give up. We don't want to surrender. What do you mean cut off my right hand? And I just would ask, what does our unwillingness to surrender say about our value of Jesus? If, if we're stuck on this idea, what does our unwillingness to surrender, that feeling you felt when I read those verses, what does our unwillingness to surrender tell us about our value of Jesus?
as we wrestle with these questions and as we try to come to a place where we have a better understanding, I think the thrust, if I could summarize the thrust of, of what Jesus is driving at here, is that we need to evaluate our current circumstances, our current circumstances, whatever they may be. We must evaluate our current circumstances in light of eternity. He's saying, look, like there are things that are temporary. This body in its current form, like it's, it's going to be renewed, it's going to be restored. It is currently temporary. So evaluate the value of what is temporary in light of the value of what is eternal. If we look at Jesus and say, I can't follow your teaching because I have this temporary thing that I love too much. Jesus says, I'm the eternal one here. You should value me. Evaluate our current circumstances in light of eternity. And if I could just draw a real quick line over to our topic. For forgiveness of forgiveness. Um, unforgiveness, Jesus is going to come out and say, unforgiveness is sin. And it will continue to separate you from God. And if you say, yeah, but that person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. I'm going to hold this grudge because I don't deserve it. And you get yourself all worked up. Jesus' word to you may be this. Cut off your hand to save your soul. Cut it off to save your life. But let's continue reading because these are, these are difficult passages and there's a lot to wrestle with. Um, let's continue reading in verse 10. Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So we're coming back to children. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So we're returning to a conversation about children. We're still holding up this child as a paradigm of what it looks like to be in the kingdom and to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And so, so I think it would be really easy to say, okay, well, I, I like kids or I tolerate kids or kids really aren't that bad. So this person isn't talking about me. But there's there's been, I, I repeated it, I tried to, to, to draw your attention to it. There's been an application of what Jesus is saying here that, that has kind of been hidden. He says in, in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to, to be thrown in the sea. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, he's not just talking about a child generically. He he is he's turned this metaphor of a child, this illustration of a child, this attitude of a, of a dependent humility, and he's saying these are my disciples. These are the people who follow me. They believe in me, and so see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Please hear me. Please hear me. See that you do not despise other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm sure, I'm confident, if you spend any time in church at all, that you have been hurt by people who claim the name of Christ. And so hear Jesus' words here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
And it's interesting what Jesus is doing here because he's talking to little ones and he's talking over the disciples. So it's, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever done this, where there's been somebody in the room that you need to address. You need to, to say something to them. But if you say it directly to them, it's going to embarrass them or it's going to be taken as harsh. So you turn to someone beside them and say the thing you need to say to them in order that they might hear it and understand what you're trying to say. I think he's talking over the shoulder of the disciples to talk about the disciples. Because he's talking about, you don't despise these little ones. Remember, these men were arguing about who's the greatest. They're a community in conflict with each other. And that's the issue he's addressing here. You guys are arguing with each other. You're, you're, you're battling for position and priority. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see my face and my Father who is in heaven. And whenever angels show up in the text, I don't know about you, but whenever angels show up in the text, we get just enough information to have a bunch of questions and not enough information to answer any of them. So I'm not sure if he's saying that we all have a guardian angel. He could be implying that. He might be talking about the church having an angel in general. And I don't know how to parse out that. I don't know exactly that it really matters the the technical ways that that works out, except to say this, that the little ones, that the father... (laughs) The father pays special attention to his little ones. The angels, the messengers of God, always see the face of the father in heaven. So, so they, have a, they have God's attention in a special way. Jesus is, or God, is, God the father is paying special attention to his children, as a father does. And he tells a parable. And the shape of this parable, the story of this parable, the, the, um, the plot line of this parable is identical to one that also appears in the latter chapters of Luke. But, but the details of this one are, are very, very different. He says that if a sheep, if a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes away, the, the shepherd is going to go and find that one sheep. Of course he is. And when, if he finds the sheep, he's going to rejoice over the sheep more than the ones that didn't run away. So in Luke, Luke's talking about somebody who doesn't know God is pursued by God and brought, brought to a good relationship with God. Here we're talking about a community of people who already have chosen to follow Jesus and one of them goes astray. And still the Father will pursue them. The heart of the Father is to pursue them, to find them. to forgive them and to restore them with joy. So when we find ourselves in conflict with a group, when, not if, when, when we find ourselves in conflict with a group, what are our default settings? How, how do we navigate that? Do we run away or do we lean in? What are our defaults when we find ourselves in conflict with a group? And again, just to conclude here, God's desire, the heart of God, is to forgive. He's going to leave the 99. He's going out of his way to find. If 
He will find it. He will rejoice and he will restore them. The, the sheep that has gone astray doesn't need minor help. He doesn't need God to just like help him get over the stream. He doesn't need God to just help him with whatever the thing it is that he's trying to do out there on his own. What the sheep actually needs is to be gathered up by the shepherd and brought back into a, a sustaining relationship with the shepherd and with the rest of the flock. And sometimes we get confused about what it is that we need. Sometimes we think, God, just give me the thing that I want. And God says, the thing that you want isn't the thing that you need. I'm going to bring you in and give you the thing that you need. The shepherd knows what that is. So what are our defaults when we find ourselves in conflict with a group? And I, I suspect that all of these teachings, all of these passages, all of these things drive at us something that's sticky. There's something in us that just, there's, it's not clicking right, it's not flowing right, there's, there's tension, there's friction, it's like chewing on sandpaper here. And I think that's because as we open the topic of forgiveness, we begin to see that forgiveness is actually impossible. <laughs> I can't have the right heart attitudes. I can't be humble. I can't extend forgiveness to people who don't forgive it, who don't deserve it. I can't extend forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. Uh, I just, this is, this is hard. This is impossible, Jesus. And if you feel that, then my encouragement to you is not just to try harder. My encouragement to you is to turn towards Jesus and to follow him. This is something that he's going to grow within us, that we cannot grow in in ourselves. Our default settings are not wired towards forgiveness. And if we're going to embrace forgiveness, we have to first embrace Jesus. Jesus.